0: at paypal.me forward slash hpopod the link to both of those can also be found in the show notes finally please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform now on to the next topic
1: a room slash my uh, my battle station here <laughs>
0: you,
2: see, you see my background is i don't know if you re- you don't i don't know if you recognize it. that's ecuador apparently
1: that okay, <laughs> nice. That kilota, Oh no, that's uh, uh, Tungurahua, I think.
2: It might be. To- I don't know. I'll, I'll move out of the way. Maybe you recognize. I don't know if you've been there. Yeah, so it's yeah, a pretty church, sir. Yeah, it's like yeah, a, a scary ass volcano there. Like that. <laughs> that could be. Yeah. So anyway, you're like out. In, you're out in the in the uh, wilds of Ecuador, I think. Something like that. Somewhere in Ecuador. Yeah.
1: yeah you know, I'm actually. Uh, I'm here in the Andes, so the the scenery you see behind you. The place I live, it's a little bit warmer, so there's no snow here. Yeah. There's no volcanoes in the area I live in, because there's about a thousand microclimates in Ecuador. Just, just in this valley, there's like hundred microclimates. I can go, I can drive 15 minutes and be in an area where it's way more dry, maybe about five to 10 degrees hotter every single day. Um, so yeah, it's a really weird place. You got snow-capped volcanoes, the jungle, um, the warm Pacific Ocean. Uh, and then the Andes, I mean, it's just, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of really cool terrain here. It's a good spot.
2: Yeah. I've heard a lot of good things about Ecuador. A lot of people like to go retire there and you know, what's the city? Queto, how do you say it? Keto? Keto, right? Yeah. Keto. Exactly. Keto. Yeah. It'd be a perfect place for people on a ketogenic diet to go live. <laughs> exactly. Perfect place for us carnivores. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a, you know, I think you've got a, I guess a YouTube channel. I mean, you call it, you call it primal edge health yeah have I mean, been doing that for for a number of years now i guess is that is that that's correct that's right, right.
1: that's so, right man i've been on youtube for uh since two thousand and fourteen we started uh talking about low fat um i'm sorry uh, low carb high fat diets started talking about ketogenic diet back in uh, in 2014 um are we uh, are we recording now or are we gonna no just we've go been right in? Yeah, we' are recording
0: yeah i put to, it
1: up
2: we recorded silliness and then it there's anything but awesome. uh you know Sometimes cool. we get people saying stupid stuff, and we can embarrass them. So <laughs> that's
1: great. That's great. Yeah. Well, I'll try not to. Uh, um, yeah, I'll, I'll try not to make any uh, any offensive statements. Um, uh, yeah. So 2014, we started the YouTube channel, and that was after. Uh, so our daughter was born in 2012, May 2012, here in Ecuador. Uh, we've been in Ecuador since 2010. Um, so 2012, our daughter was born, and when she started getting her baby teeth. Uh, we noticed something really alarming. They started essentially just dissolving. You know, She had really bad dental caries. Uh, I'm sure you talking to a lot of ex-vegans have probably seen the degeneration that uh, we can get when we remove animal fats, animal products from our body. One of those side effects being osteopenia, sarcopenia as well. But we weren't on a vegan diet. Actually, about a year before that, we had done a stint. Um, of playing around with veganism, right? So we kind of started trying to get healthy. First thing you come upon when you're trying to get healthy back in 2008 and 2009, you've got a kind of small paleo community that's not making that much noise, but you had the plant-based diet people. You had a lot of these plant-based uh, vegan dieters really representing their diet and saying that this is a way to get healthy outside of pharmaceutical drugs, a way to get off of big pharma um, drugs that I had been on my whole life, and I grew up with asthma, allergies. Um, you know, I played sports. I played soccer and baseball, but um, I always, always had a limit. I always had limitations, and I always knew there was just that my body was just not in tip-top shape. Never had uh, good digestion. Always had you know just issues, little issues, and uh, allergies, asthma being the main ones. So I started trying to use food to hopefully kind of regenerate my body. I had a major major injury that I would uh, gotten from skateboarding, got hit by a car. I hit a car and the car stubbornly hit me back. Um, so I uh, really, I don't know, I was in a lot of pain. Like I used to wake up in the middle of the night. Um, a, a few times I actually woke up in the middle of the night and was in so much pain and so frustrated. I was crying tears of like frustration and pain. Um, you know, anybody who's had chronic inflammation injuries uh there even some chronic diseases probably knows that feeling when you just you don't know what to do right i had no money um had, was getting out i had no more insurance uh, i just finished up uh, at the university uh, at the university of california in santa cruz and i don't know i wanted to get healthy so started playing around with like kind of more of like a vegan diet quickly realized that i needed meat um i try to go like a week without meat and uh I would just be starving right <laughs> it, just, it felt like I was fasting you know if anybody's ever done like a long-term fast five days seven days that's what it felt like trying to go without meat and uh, at the same time I'm trying to regenerate my body and I'm just thinking okay the plant foods give us all the building blocks we need maybe I'm addicted to the meat maybe this will work and every time I tried it after about five to seven days I would cave I had a friend that would get me salmon collars he worked at the farmer's market uh slinging fish and he would give me the collars of the salmon because they're really hard to package. So they'd take the salmon collars and just throw them away. And the guys that worked there would take them in bags and they'd give them to their friends, throw them in the freezer. And every single time I had one of those salmon collars, I would just my eyes would light up. And I felt astronomically better. So I realized that the meats are important, but I thought, well, maybe they're not that important. <laughs> maybe we don't need them every day. Maybe we just need them like a few times a week. Really stupid thinking, right? Um, maybe I was trying to justify my poverty and you know, not wanting to spend uh, you know, several dollars a pound to get some meat and you can get quinoa and lentils and all this other crap, vegan food and get a lot cheaper. Um, so anyways, going back to my daughter, when my daughter was born, her teeth started basically dissolving and um the dental caries freaked us out right I mean this was you you have a kid kind of changes you you know like everything becomes real suddenly and uh it's this burden of responsibility and this really intense feeling of love and like you know you'd do anything for this kid you'd kill for him you die for him um so her teeth started dissolving in her mouth and we were freaked out. Um, we're like, well, what are we, we going to do? We're going to go to a dentist. The standard thing that a dentist is going to tell you when you have dental caries is it's because the mother's breastfeeding. That's what they tell you. They say, oh, it's because the mom's breastfeeding. Um, you need to stop breastfeeding at night, stuff like that. Um, we didn't really buy into it. We didn't really think that the standard uh, narrative was true. So we started looking deeper into it. And we came upon Weston A. Price's work. So back in 2013, we read, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, which is a book I had heard about when I was getting into the idea of a vegan diet. Um, people who were um, saying that a vegan diet is definitely inferior always referenced this book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. So we had a copy of it. We even had this book and we just, we hadn't read it yet. Um, and uh, so we, we read Weston Price's book and he actually traveled among all these cultures where it uh, was before they had received what he called the foods of commerce which is basically you know, canned foods, marmalades, jams, sugar, processed wheat, processed uh, starches, um, you know, corn, all these junk foods that um, these industrial nations, namely the United States, started exporting all around the world through you know, major grain conglomerates like Cargill um, and whatnot. And uh, so these are the companies we see that are so big today. Um, when they started pushing these foods onto these cultures – they would see immediate degeneration within the first generation. Um, So where the parents had very straight teeth, wide palates, full development of the jaw and face, the children were suffering from dental caries. The children were more prone to tuberculosis. Um, And what he noticed was all of these cultures, before they received the imported foods and the junk foods and the processed crap, they were all eating most of their calories from animal foods. He actually wanted to prove that there could be a vegetarian culture out there that was healthy, he couldn't find a single one. So even these Tahitians, these people in Bali, um, all these islands where there's abundant tropical fruit available, you know, like Durian Riders Heaven, freely the banana girls, uh, natural environment was providing all these fruits and vegetables or you know, fruits, uh, tropical fruits that were ripe year round. And these people were still eating primarily animal foods from the ocean and just using plant foods as essentially almost, uh, you know, additional, non-necessary additions to the diet. So they had fertility foods like uh, special crabs. Uh, here in the Andes, when he traveled to Peru, he found that they were trading for the coast uh, to the coastal people for these eggs that come from a skate, a skate-like creature called the angelote. And they would bring these eggs up here and they were very high in iodine, very f- high in fat-soluble vitamins, these dried, unfertilized eggs from inside of the skate-like creature. And they would use those as fertility foods. So this um, got us interested in the power of animal foods. So we kind of followed the Weston A. Price Foundation's information and actually got a lot of valuable stuff for them. I know some people are critical of them, especially in the vegan community, they, you know their meat industry shills. But you know the Weston A. Price Foundation, they definitely do a lot of good work. And I think uh, they definitely do a good job of advocating for food sovereignty, food freedom, things like um, you know, the availability of raw milk, raw cheese, stuff like that. Uh, those are definitely things that we do need to, uh, be pushing for in our culture and things that I saw immediately help my daughter. So we started giving her grass fed butter. We started giving her liver. We started giving her, you know, we started giving her raw beef liver. She really likes that. We started giving her more meat, more animal fats, and we saw immediate results. Her teeth hardened up. Uh, the, d- the decay stopped and now she's getting her adult teeth. They're totally fine. Totally normal. Uh, they're coming in really straight, and everything's good with our daughter's health. Our son, who pre conception, Jessica was eating a mostly carnivorous diet, right? Loads of animal fats, um, you know, full fat dairy, yogurt, uh, I'm sorry, uh, heavy cream rather, lots of butter, um, organ meats, liver, uh, heart, um, bone marrow, stuff like that, lots of broth and uh, meat, steaks, fish, eggs. And he had no problem with his baby teeth at all. Whereas normally the second, third child that a mother has tend to have more health problems. You know, the mother's kind of depleted, <laughs> I guess you'd say, from, uh, from giving birth so many times. So that's what started out our channel. We started getting into high fat nutrition. And uh, then I got into a ketogenic diet, I was doing mostly animal foods with some vegetables, thought the vegetables were necessary. Um, eventually ended up coming to Carnivore. And uh, through, uh, have, you, have, you guys, have you guys heard of Sean Baker? Dr. Sean Baker? Uh,
0: so hey you <laughs> know,
2: hey Tristan let me interrupt you now because I, I don't know if you saw this but I, I was just for some reason I was looking something up and there is an actual Dr. Sean Baker who works for the Bill Gates Foundation the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as their head nutritionist which I thought was just ironic as can be I just had a laugh you to check that out. He spells the same he spells his name the exact same way I do as well so I think it's quite well,
0: maybe he's taking some of the hate mail off of your off of your plate. Then <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't think there's ever. I don't think there's ever enough hate mail for
1: uh, for yeah. us carnivores.
2: <laughs> Tristan, so, uh, um, yeah, just one another. I'll just make a comment. You know, when I was operating, you know, I was in the OR about three days a week. Two my my surgical schedule was two days one week and then three days the next. I was in the operating room all the time, and it was every Wednesday. Whenever I was there on a Wednesday, it was always uh dental extraction day for the pediatric patients so we would they would run through six eight six or eight kids and pull all their teeth out of their mouth and this wasn't you know i don't know how many of the kids were on plant-based diets but certainly we saw it over and over again uh, and i think it was just poor diets in general and, and you know a lot yeah, of these, absolutely a lot of parents, standard
1: american diet
2: yeah, yeah. They're, they're putting their kids to bed with apple juice or even in some cases coca-cola and stuff like that in their baby bottles and so yeah i i think that you know there's you know, there's a lot of problems with the diet and it's, you know, and I, I do think that, uh, you know, preferencing animal nutrition is obviously the best choice. Um, and then, and then, so when you were, when you experimented with veganism and you thought or plant-based and you were thinking that it's going to help me, did there, did it help at all? Because, you know, you have all these conditions, you know, whether it's chronic pain, whether it's asthma, allergies, many people just think that's normal. I mean, hey, allergies, it's allergy season. We're supposed to have allergies or, you know, it's uh, you know, my, my I've been working out hearts, and you know, I'm supposed to have little aches and pains, and I'm only 25 years old or whatever it is. And right. you know, people normalize this sort of concept, this sort of uh, um, physical state. You know, that's just normal human existence that we should we should have these inefficiencies and problems and pain and discomfort. At what point? I mean, did that help at all? Did the did the plant based diet help you at all initially, or was it just completely a wash?
1: As far as uh... I think anytime we change our diet or change behavior and we start pecking through these addictive behaviors that we have and we take control of our automatic reactions to things, it gives us a high. So simply like deciding I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to stop eating Ben and Jerry's and Burger King every day. I'm going to stop eating the shitty carnitas burritos and um, like, well, that, you know, probably a lot better than the Burger King and stuff. At least there's some meat in that, but you know, I'm going to stop eating this junk food and I'm going to treat my body right. I think just, just getting to that place gives you, I mean, you start rewiring your brain, right? You start rewiring your habits. So I think you get kind of a high from that. And I think a lot of time when people go on plant-based diets, yeah, they might experience slightly improved health due to the change in, uh, you know, maybe eating less junk food, eating less of the crap foods. Maybe some of them are even eating less processed sugar and grains and stuff, which we did. At first, I felt good, but I did notice um, – the pain didn't go away. Right. So I had chronic pain in my hip and I had this knot of like really intense scar tissue in my hip and you know, it it affected my lower back. uh, um, And I I was diagnosed scoliosis in seventh grade as well. So I know that I had a crooked spine, which was not, it wasn't a birth defect or something like that. It wasn't genetic. I think this was behavioral, right? So the uh, dominant on one leg, um, you know, uh, skateboarding a lot, jumping off of one leg, leaning over desks all the time. So I, I had pain that it stacked up and that pain didn't start going away. In fact, it actually would get worse and it starts getting worse. And I guess the standard line would be, oh, maybe it's detoxification, right? It's just like, you know, when, when these vegans detox all their teeth, uh, when they <laughs> don't get their period anymore, they, they start to justify. So I never really went there. I never got that far. I, I knew I needed to build muscle. I knew I needed to build strength. And I really quickly noticed that without meat, um, I didn't feel good enough. I didn't, I, just, I didn't feel like I was regenerating. So it was, uh, I noticed really quickly, but I was stupid enough to think maybe I don't need that much meat. Maybe it's just necessary, this like necessary evil that we have to do um, every once in a while. Uh, and as soon as I started adding more animal foods, everything improved. I was able to add lean muscle mass. I had the energy to work out. My mood improved. Uh the the stuff with my daughter, which like we weren't on a vegan diet preconception. We were on we were just eating what we thought was good. And we that was a lot of uh lots of quinoa, lentils, beans, rice, every once in a while some meat, but we never even we didn't buy meat. We didn't know how to prepare it. So we would we would go out to eat and order, you know, uh secco de chivo or something like that. We would go out to eat and we'd be eating some lamb, we'd be eating some goat meat or some um you know, order uh, you know, a burger or something we went out and that was the only meat we were getting. So as soon as I started adding more meat and I got on more of a ketogenic diet that was meat centric, everything improved. But what's crazy is, uh, how much more it improved, uh, from removing the last bits of vegetables that were there. You know, I wouldn't have thought that that would be such a big difference, but it actually
0: ended up making a huge difference. So when you first started the ketogenic diet, you were doing a pretty heavy meat base, even with that?
1: Yeah, so it was, you know, we were eating a lot of bone broth. Uh, We'd have like broth and slow cooked meat. Um, I would do, I would do like one meal a day. Jessica would do two. I'd do like one meal a day and it'd be like a pound of meat with a side of some greens. And I thought the greens were necessary, right? I thought maybe... Well, you start looking at the uh, the keto flu, right? People talk elect- about electrolyte imbalance. And then you look at the nutrient content of a lot of the leafy greens, and they say they got a lot of potassium in them, right? Um, what's crazy is like, so we've been coaching people, Jessica has it. I've been coaching people for the last four years now. Um, so I got a lot of data from people doing keto, people doing carnivore. And what I've noticed is on a ketogenic diet, that keto flu thing, the electrolyte imbalance Kind of becomes hard to manage for a lot of people, but when you remove all the plants and you go carnivorous, or even a carnivorous ketogenic diet, where you're still eating higher fat, you know, adding more like a uh, like paleo medicina does. That's kind of what I lean towards: or higher fat, um, but not two grams to one ratio like they do. I think that's a little bit excessive for me. Um, more like one to one point five grams of protein per gram of fat. And um, yeah, what I notice is people don't really have the same issues like they don't have to supplement magnesium they don't feel like supplementing potassium whereas on keto it almost seems like these vegetables might be blocking some of the nutrient absorption and might be causing some issues
2: yeah That's I just mean,
1: observation but i don't know yeah, It could be wrong.
2: yeah i mean well i mean there's obviously there's experimental data that supports that i mean we certainly see you know that fiber oxalates and, and phytic acid clearly will will inhibit the absorption of uh, many electrolytes including magnesium. Let me you know because this is interesting stuff but one of the things that, that I find about you that's unique about your particular channel is you've really looked into some of the historical and some of the global influences that sort of are maybe driving our nutritional narrative and and you know some people will say it's conspiracy theory I tend to think it's aligned with 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 financial gain but let's talk a little bit about some of that stuff you've kind of been talking about over the last you know couple of years about yeah. what 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 is shaping our our uh, nutritional policy worldwide and, and what what issues do you see are going on with that
1: yeah i mean this, this is kind of a huge this is a huge issue and it's a big part of what i've been talking about so i studied history in university um actually for my uh for my my thesis before, uh, before I finished my bachelor's degree, I actually studied the early eugenics movement and the connections from a lot of these big foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation. And now you see, you mentioned earlier, the Bill Gates Foundation it used to be the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, I studied their connection to the funding of the early eugenics movement, uh, which was eugenics being basically the idea that through controlled breeding, um, we could breed kind of a superhuman race that we could select the undesirable aspects of society, remove them from the gene pool. And in these people's worldview, they believed that they could actually breed a, uh, you know, a more uh, palatable humanity and through social engineering and genetic engineering, they believed that they would be, um, you know, selecting the best aspects of humanity. There were also aspects of dysgenics that were discussed at the same time. This is in the early 19th century. And you see, uh, guys like John D Rockefeller, um, uh, when he started the Rockefeller Foundation, his number one priority was population control. So uh, the threads of the modern agriculture movement and the big agriculture, big pharma takeover of our food supply actually do have their roots in the early eugenics movement. And the same foundations that funded the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute that did the eugenics research in Nazi Germany actually funded Cold Springs Harbor, which was uh, in New York. It uh, was basically a database of all this genetic information and information on United States citizens and um, Bill Gates' his father was uh, involved in the eugenics movement early on. He became a part of Planned Parenthood, promoting family planning and looking to through propaganda, through um, through social engineering, influence certain people to breed and certain people to not breed. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation was really uh, was involved in a lot of the early. Um, the early studies in eugenics, uh, there were actually forced sterilization programs in the U.S. A lot of people don't know about this in the twenties and thirties, and even into the forties um, prisoners and United States citizens, invalids and uh, idiots. They call some of these people, they were being forcibly sterilized um, in order to improve the gene pool. Um, so there is this thread of this type of thought, this uh, you know, kind of what I would say is absolute megalom- megalomaniacal thought of um, you know, we have the right to, selectively breed human beings. And you know, I, got a, I got right here next to me, one of my favorite articles to point people to, to see the thought patterns that were going through some of these uh, elite organizations like the uh, Royal Society, um, the British Royal Society, um, and these big foundations. If you check out, there's a article from 1929 in Cosmopolitan Magazine, uh, Hearst Cosmopolitan Magazine, 1929. Mm-hmm. And the article is called Save This for Your Children's Children's Children. Uh, this is a forecast of what the world will be like 100 years from now by the Earl of Birkenhead. So the Earl of Birkenhead, um, if you're listening, you won't be able to see him. But if you're watching it on YouTube, there's a, a picture of the Earl of Birkenhead. He's got a cool little white powdered wig on. He likes, he's got Saturn up above his up above his shoulder there, but some of the predictions that, uh, that they talk about here, uh, the Lord, Lord Birkenhead, he calls himself, uh, in 1929, he gives several predictions. In the beginning of the article, it starts with, babies will be produced by chemists in laboratories. Uh, second one, the entire institution of marriage will be changed. Uh, next, we will all live to be 150. Um, no one will need to work more than two hours a day. Next is, agriculture will be abolished except as a hobby, and all foodstuffs will be produced synthetically. Uh, And then he's got several more predictions, which are really interesting, but uh, not as relevant to what we're talking about now. Uh, And then he actually talks about selective breeding and eugenics. Uh, Talks about in this article, there's a little quote here, um, about separating reproduction from marriage. Uh, Further, the character of the future inhabitants of any state could be determined by the government, which happened temporarily to enjoy power. By regulating the choice of the ectogenetic parents of the next generation, the cabinet of the future could breed a nation of industrious dollars or leave in the population with 50,000 charmingly irresponsible mural painters so it's kind of a cheeky joke there of well, what if we just bred a bunch of idiots that would just be our little industrial slaves and then we give them some celebrity painters to keep them uh, to keep them occupied and to entertain them so this thought thread has been going through um uh these kind of elite circles for a long time and this is something that's always interested me. he actually talks about agriculture being abolished he says by 2029 agriculture if not abolished will be in decay at least in civilized lands the first step towards the end of agriculture will be the production of benevolent bacteria able to fix the atmospheric nitrogen which is essential to the growth of plant life so he kind of predicts uh fritz pops is that his name fritz pop the uh the nitrogen the nitrogen guy um and uh yeah he talks about synthetic foods and the production of animal tissues in vitro will finally set the rest of those timid minds which prophesy a day when the earth's resources will not feed her children uh, set at rest, those timid minds. So uh, it's kind of this, there's this thread of Malthusian talk that you see throughout history, especially the 20th century. The the idea being there's not enough resources, there's too many people, and we're not going to be able to feed all these people. And you see this really, really, uh, a lot of this post-industrial revolution thought among the elite in circles like the British Royal Society, Um, And some of the American organizations like uh, the Council on Foreign Relations um, and then these NGOs like the Rockefeller Foundation, they all have a very, very uh, keen interest in depopulation, population control, selective breeding and control of agriculture and foodstuffs because they see this as a way to control populations. So there's a quote that a journalist, I know I'm rambling here, but there's a quote that a journalist uh, gave uh, attributed to Henry Kissinger. Uh, now, this wasn't on video or audio, uh, but this journalist, he was a respected journalist in the 70s, and Kissinger said um, something along the lines of, you control oil, you control the nations, you control food, you control the people. Um, and Kissinger is well known for his National Security State Memorandum 200 that he wrote um, for the uh, the Population Council, which was, uh, John, uh, was it John D. Rockefeller III, I think, was... Uh, or it was either Nelson Rockefeller or John D. the Third. One of the five Rockefeller brothers was in charge of the population council, which was looking at ways to decrease the population through many methods. Some of them just social engineering, uh, promoting family planning, they call it. Um, also sterilization. Uh, and another aspect of it was food. So David Rockefeller was also really into the uh, uh, Latin America and controlling the food production in the third world. And, uh, when you look into this, I know I've kind of painted a broad picture here, but uh, I hope it, I hope it's clear uh, there is a certain thread of thought among the uh, self-proclaimed elite that. They have the right to control breeding and that they should take control of the food supply. And that's what we've seen in the 20th century. We saw the Green Revolution, hundreds of millions of dollars from the Rockefeller Foundation pushed into sending genetically modified seeds, eventually GMO seeds. But first it was chemical pesticides and fertilizers to the third world. Uh, Then you see golden rice in India. Uh, eventually, it led to Monsanto's GMO corn. The Rockefellers opened up the doorway to this with, hundred, with $100 million investment into this GMO research. Rockefeller, David Rockefeller actually runs the Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University. And they're all about pushing the, they call it the green agenda now. Um, and this green agenda is essentially about feeding the world through genetically modified foods, consolidated food supply, patented seeds that are highly profitable and it's essentially about control of resources and control of breeding of the population. So, you know, real light, fluffy stuff. I know it's, <laughs> it's really, really easy to talk about these things with people. Um, <laughs> but yeah.
2: Tristan, what, um, you know, it's because it's interesting. There's a lot of stuff in there, obviously. And I just want to, you know, when you're talking about eugenics and, you know, we all know about the, you know, the Nazis and the Aryan race and stuff like that, but yeah, you're, yeah. you're saying beyond that, people are trying to select certain uh, traits. Do we know what those are? Do we know which populations they would would, would prefer to thrive and which ones they prefer sort of dwindled away? Was there any sort of evidence of who's going to go and who's going to stay? Has that been talked about? I
1: mean, I think there's different factions. When you look at a lot of these big foundations and these billionaires you have, it's not like there's a consolidated, it's not like David Rockefeller was sitting down with, Bill Gates. I mean, maybe they were. Uh, they, de- they definitely did have uh, the Bill Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation have seemed to have the same interest. But uh, when you look at Planned Parenthood, uh, Margaret Sanger uh, specifically wanted to target African-American populations for sterilization and for abortions. Um, and when you look at uh, what Planned Parenthood's still doing, it's Kind of widely known that they definitely target uh, lower class. They target lower class people, and um, and of course, some people would say, "Well, that's it's good. You know, we have to uh, we want to make sure that these kids grow up and they're they're well fed and they're well nourished." But when you look at Margaret Sanger's writings, she was She was openly racist, and she started the um, the Planned Parenthood organization. So I know, obviously, talking about anything like abortion becomes highly politically charged. Um, but yeah, it seems like. Uh, the third world is the main issue for these people. So they, what it is, is it's the peasantry that are a problem. People that can produce their own food off the land seem to be targeted the most by, um, these foundations. They're pushing GMO seeds really heavily in Africa. Um, and you know, instead of giving these people clean water, instead of giving these people, uh, access to medical care, that's actually fighting the common infectious diseases there, they're selling them certain products or certain pushing certain products on them. And they're, uh, trying to get GMO seeds pushed on these people. So that's the, phila- the philanthropy that you see in the 20th century is not done for uh, the greater good, as these people want you to, uh, to believe. It's actually done in order to consolidate power. So the Rockefeller Foundation was started with the Standard Oil uh, money. It was the Standard Oil Trust. So it's basically the biggest monopoly uh, ever in the United States. Um, John D. Rockefeller, Sr., uh, whose father was the original snake oil salesman. I don't know if people understand, know about this. John D. Rockefeller's father, uh, the, the guy who started Standard Oil, his father literally was the original snake oil salesman. And he made his small fortune through swindling people, selling them actual snake oil, telling them the snake oil is going to cure everything. So he was a master at this. And uh, that foundation, uh, which was given to the sons of John D. Rockefeller, um, They actually donated the land that the United Nations stands on, Uh, were highly involved in the creation of the Council on Foreign Relations, which was planning a post-World War II society before the World War even happened. Uh, There are documents and studies from the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, planning out the post-war economy, and they were very interested in agriculture and controlling food stuff. So um, you don't see as much of a racial bias in the U.S. as you did in Nazi Germany, but these same big foundations and the same big banks that are bankrolling the economy today were the foundation of Nazi Germany's eugenics program. So they shared information. The Kaiser Wilhelm Institute uh, was funded and started and helped uh, uh, start by the Carnegie, uh, Carnegie Endowment, the Carnegie Institute rather, and the Rockefeller Foundation. So there is a lot of um, interconnections. There are a lot of interconnections internationally between these foundations, governments, uh, supra-governmental organizations like the UN and, um, and these agendas, and of course, big corporations, right? Monsanto, Bayer, uh, Bayer Pharmaceutical coming out of the IG Farben cartel. So Bayer was actually a part of the Nazi eugenics program as well. Um, IG Farben was producing uh, Zyklon B uh, during World War II. And after the war, the cartel, they called it a cartel, um, IG Farben was broken up and Bayer was one of those companies. And then Bayer has been working closely with Monsanto for at least the last like 50 years. Uh, and now they're finally one uh, giant company. Bayer purchased Monsanto for like 63 or $66 billion, uh, I think 2016. Um, so there, there are a lot of connections. I'm sorry. I know I went a little bit off track. You were asking about specific people that might be targeted for sterilization. Um, in the early eugenics programs in the U S it was prisoners, violent criminals, uh, invalids, people with birth defects and stuff like that. Uh, but there was a lot of pushback and people said this is a slippery slope because who decides who is allowed to live, you know, who, who's right is it to decide that if I had a kid and that kid had down syndrome or something, um, you know, at that time, the government may have, uh, you know, may have sterilized that child forcibly um, in some of these institutions. And, you know, for the greater good is always the line, right? Just like veganism. Now it's pushed for the greater good. When you look behind it, you got the beyond burgers, Bill Gates is one of the biggest investors, Tyson Foods. So it's the same big ag companies. It's the same Green Revolution people that are funding this. And actually what I wrote about in the university was how the Green Revolution, if you really look at it, could be seen as the ideological and uh, institutional extension of the early eugenics movement.
2: It's, uh, I mean, that's an interesting association. And obviously there are people that would challenge that. Um, you know, there's many people out there that says, you know, we just got too many damn people, and you know, we got projecting nine point five, ten billion people by 2050, and we got to feed them all, and you know, the only way we're going to be able to do that is via, you know, grain, grain based, uh, you know, food supply. And you know, yeah. many people say it would laud Bill Gates for 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 feeding these starving people. What yeah. other options? I mean, you know, we had Frank Mittlner on the other day, and and his concern wasn't, I don't know, there was so much about food consumption he was worried about, you know, as, as a third world countries get wealthier and, and inevitably they will, they're going to be using utilizing a lot more resources, uh, yeah. you know, not just food, but air travel and electricity and, and commodities and so on and so yeah, forth. Yeah. How dare they, right?
1: Like we should, we should only have access to these things. Whereas, you know, the rest of the world should be in the stone age and should just be producing goods for us. That's, that's kind of the Rockefeller foundations, uh, ethos basically, you know, it's kind of a, I would say that that, that, that worldview is highly destructive and that there there definitely is a uh there are better ways and you know the main the main uh problem with you know people talk about greenhouse gases and stuff they talk about cars and airplanes I mean there are other technologies that have been around for a long time um there are other building materials other than petroleum uh you know plastics and petroleum byproducts there are other ways of um you know, treating people other than with pharmaceutical drugs. So I think these things are institutionalized and these, this worldview I believe is actually um, it's perpetuated through th- through universities, through the education system. And most people do say that most people would believe that there's too many people. Uh, there's not enough resources and uh, we're just, we're not going to be able to feed the population. But when you actually look at the history of the West I mean, you go all the way back to Malthus, and he had a bunch of fry, flies, in a, uh, fruit flies, in a jar, and he said, "Look, these fruit flies in this jar will eventually die because they'll run out of space. Therefore, we need to control the human population because we're all going to run out of resources. And we're all going to die." It, they've been having, they've had this doomsday scenario, and they've been programming uh, the populace to believe this for for years. I mean, for several hundred years now and they're always predicting the population bomb. You know, you, they had the baby boomers. I mean, these are, these are propaganda terms like just baby boomers. That is a highly advanced propaganda term, like straight out of Edward Bernays playbook uh, to make us associate high birth rates with destruction, with death. Um, You know, babies are bad. People are bad. The problem is human beings. We're literally being programmed by a psychopathic society Um, and I'm not saying that this is all intentional. Some of this could just be, um, you know, forces outside of ourselves even, but we are being programmed to believe that we're bad, uh, that when we're born, it's like, you know, Gaia cries an oil tear, a single drop of oil drops from mama earth's eye. Every time an evil baby's born because we excrete CO2 toxic byproducts, um, and babies are bad. So, uh, I I think it's, uh, the whole overpopulation thing is an absolute myth they said a uh, Paul Ehrlich in the seventies was saying that by 1989, we're just going to be piles of corpses living on each other. We won't be able to feed anybody. Um, he said this over and over again and all his predictions were wrong. Al Gore talking about the, uh, you know, global warming is going to destroy the planet by 2000. I forget what the date he gave in that first film. Uh, but he was wrong too. So we see this doomsday religious cult kind of developing the climate cult, I call it. Um, and I would say that it's, uh, the we need to maybe take a step back and actually look at the basic presuppositions of that and um and question the very foundations of the thought the thought threads that uh that have been weaving the fabric of modern society and i know it's not easy to uh to get people to go there but i think the overpopulation thing is is absolute nonsense when you when you look here where i live how much of this land is uninhabited. When you look at a map in the United States, you see where people actually live. Um, there's so much unused land. There's so much land that's, uh, that there's just, the human population is not going to eat itself out of existence. In fact, most of the food in the U.S. gets thrown away. We have a surplus of food. And of course, there's areas where there's drought, famine. There's areas where people are impoverished, where they're culturally impoverished. Um, but, I think that overall the overpopulation thing is a, it's a social engineering um, strategy used to dupe people into, um, into buying into certain agendas like the green agenda, you know, the, uh, the green revolution was uh, industrial agriculture, right? The removal of people from the land, the small family farm being destroyed. And when you read some of the writings from people like uh, Bertrand Russell, um H. G. Wells's nonfiction stuff, like these big thinkers, um, especially out of um out of England, their common thread, the thing that they all believe is there's too many people, overpopulation, and uh they believe in creating a global system, a uh either under one uh organiz- organizational entity or Um, a completely decentralized, more, uh, you know, global communist system. So the thought threads that are, uh, that are weaving this come from, uh, I would say just faulty reasoning and really uh, people who are duped, you know, I mean, you read like Bertrand Russell's book uh, somewhere around here, the scientific outlook. It's the most unscientific book you've ever read. I mean, this, it's just, it's basically, it's like the rantings of a megalomaniacal maniac. And in this book he talks about in the future society Um, we're going to have to restrict people's access to information. We're going to have to burn books basically. Um, and and we're going to have to control all thought and all resources on the planet. And, um, to me, it's just, it's, it's absolute, uh, madness. You know, I don't think it'll, I don't think we're going to necessarily get there, but the way that the system's running today, uh, it's, it's really destructive, man. I mean, we've got people here, they get glyphosate, they get Roundup and they get told, hey, this stuff's like candy. You spray it on your field. It's totally healthy. It's all good. Uh, you don't need any protective gear. They go out with a, with a bandana across their face just spraying Roundup everywhere. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty alarming how people believe that uh, these industrial chemicals, these fertilizers and stuff are absolutely necessary to feed the population when you, know, you can have people using ruminant animals, using uh, restorative agriculture, using organic agriculture, um, And you mentioned, uh, was it uh, Frank Mitlener? I think he's an advocate for you know ruminant animals fixing the soil, amending the soil. Um, So I think uh, there is another way. Like we don't need industrial agriculture to feed people.
0: Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass fed and grass finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Yeah. And you know, the, when you mentioned the waste component is one that I find that often gets overlooked. I don't think people really realize or put that into the context of, of this stuff. And, you know, I remember when I was in high school, I worked at a fast food restaurant. We would throw like full grocery or full like plastic bags full of food away because like, you know, it can't, it can't sit out for more than however many minutes before you have to dump it. And, and it's just like, if, if they fix that side of it, you'd, you'd think it would be a, a pretty big step in the right direction. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, a lot of it too, it comes down to, uh, you know, what, what people believe their place in, in the world is right. I mean, it's uh, if we believe that it's our responsibility to go and police the third world, if we believe it's our responsibility to, um, you know, to, uh, to dethrone all the so-called dictators, um, then we're gonna, we're gonna do that. Right. So I think in, in, especially in the U S there's been this kind of, uh, you know, the Superman mythology that gets, um, ingrained in the culture like where you you know America is Superman we gotta go save the world from the evil Lex Luther and uh you know it could be Saddam Hussein, it could be Muammar Gaddafi, it could be um yeah, whoever the leader of Iran is now after Ahmadinjad, I forget uh, you know, Kim jong un you know, all these all these uh these dictators, you know, they become uh the bad guy. And as soon as the US invades, like in Iraq for instance, one of the first things that happened is Monsanto was given free reign in Iraq. Uh these um uh, the Iraqi National Seed Bank was destroyed. And we're talking about heritage seeds, heirloom varieties of wheat that have been around for tens of thousands of years gone. Um, and Monsanto given free reign Roundup everywhere. Um, you know, the, the GMO patented crops brought in there. And this is always done in the name of progress. It's always done in the name of enlightenment. We're going to help save the world, but really what we're looking at is just people vying for power, you know, people vying for resources and, uh, at a certain level, money even becomes irrelevant; it just becomes about resources. Uh, when you could print money right like if you if you say "Run the Federal Reserve and you can just print money out of nothing and people will believe that it has a certain worth uh, and then what else do you have it's, it becomes about resources it becomes about um, the future it becomes about legacy. so I think a lot of these people they 're looking at it as uh, they 're looking at long term plans whereas we I mean, you know, I'm just trying to feed my family next week. Like, I hope I can, uh, you know, get a good night's sleep tonight. Uh, A lot of these other, you know, these corporations and NGOs, they're looking at things on like 10, 20, 50. And, you know, as you see with Birkenhead's article here, 100 years. I mean, people are planning 100 years ahead. Charles Galton Darwin wrote a book called The Next Million Years. And in this, he talks about um, selectively breeding humanity, Charles Galton Darwin is the grandson of Charles Darwin. Uh, the next million years came out in the 1950s. And it's just about um, a prediction for how society is going to change over a million year timescale. So, I mean, it's kind of grandiose and it's kind of delusional, some of the stuff he says in there. But it just shows you that this is, uh, this is how you know, a lot of people in certain strata of society and in certain circles, how they see the world. And, uh, and it does affect you know society's economies. Um, media, governments, and all this stuff, and especially our food supply. You know, I mean, food is a direct way of controlling populations. And if you can keep people dependent on your food and actually breed people and breed a society where people don't know how to create their own food, how to make their own food, how to nourish themselves, then, I mean, what else is possible?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a nice way to, and I'll, I'll just. Show you what I have. I've got. This is your guys' book. to just came out. <laughs> it's backwards because we're on a mirrored screen. But um, you know, one of the things is, you know, you're living off. You know, most people would say what you're doing. You know, for an American is a little bit unusual. You're living out in the in the hills of Ecuador. You've got chickens yeah. running around the yard. You got I don't know what other kind of animals you have, but you know, you're 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 largely taking care of your own food, or or you can do that. You have the potential to do that. And most people as we talk about populations, you know, we see this clustering in, in cities, you know, in Asia, we've got cities that are 20, in excess of 25 million people, and it's going to continue to do that. So we've, we have all these people clustering in these urban centers, and in, particularly in coastal areas, and they, they, they abandon the, you know, the prairies and the, you know, the heartland of the United States and other countries probably have similar situations. But I mean, how do we feed those people? I mean, how, how, do, how does a, how does a, how does yeah. a, a how does a twenty five year old guy living in downtown Shanghai feed himself uh, without <laughs> without a food company? How does that work?
1: Yeah, well, that's I mean, that's I would say that that's part of the problem, man. I mean, it's um, the and the where the propaganda comes out of the people who are telling you it's unsustainable for you to have a couple cows and feed your uh, feed your kids off your land because those cows are farting and they're creating evil methane. The people that are buying into that ideology are people who are just disconnected from their food, right? Like when you talk to cattle ranchers and stuff, um, you know, people that are connected to the land, they have a very different perspective on things like that. And, um, you know, I mean, yeah, when you go to New York city, it's really easy to think, damn, this world is overpopulated. There are too many people, but when you look at these urban centers, they are actually scattered around the globe and they are, they're the very dense areas of human life. But I mean, this is this is where things get difficult, man. I mean, I would say that inherently, these huge cities are kind of parasitic, right? I mean, they produce nothing. These areas produce nothing as far as resources go, and they consume huge amounts of resources. Most of the people that live in these cities, when you think about it on a grander scale, are essentially programmed from birth from cradle to grave into whatever ideology the ruling party tends to have. So you have China, they've got a one child policy, which the Rockefeller foundation actually helped to influence that. And I think they're moving away from it now because it seemed to be a failure. Um, You know, so you have a lot of these, uh, a lot of these big cities dictating policy around the world. How can you feed people in these cities without rural people producing food? I mean, it's, it, it almost seems impossible. But then when you look at roboticization, Um, the green revolution being the first step of that, the industrialization of food production. Now you have drones. Um, so I think what you're looking at is, um, this, this same, a lot of the big money is now going into transhumanism, right? So you have Silicon Valley, kind of the Silicon Valley, uh, Silicon Valley has become like the new New York city or London, right? So you have the financial centers of the world, uh, New York, Rome, London, and then now you've got Silicon Valley, which is it's an extension of the military industrial complex. All these big companies were started with seed money from DARPA and stuff. And you look at uh, what is going on now and it's the automation of everything. The uh, uh, your self-driving cars, right? Your self-driving vehicles. You have a lot of the thought leaders coming out of Silicon Valley thinking that we're going to, Become one with the machines. Like, we're going to literally just upload our consciousness to a zip drive and we'll all live in this Google utopia where, uh, you know, we can just have VR porn and, and jerk ourselves off in VR porn all day. You know, you've got these weird um, transhumanist type um, thoughts going on right now, too. So, I would say that long term, Automization is probably the model that um, the social engineers are looking at. So, you're looking at just basically removal of people from rural areas, removal of people from the land, and people don't need to know how to grow food. People don't even know about animal husbandry if you can have everything mechanized and everything um, uh, automatized using, using machines, using AI. Um, So that seems to be kind of long term plan. You got Wired magazine put out that article in like 2012, why the future doesn't need us. And, um, you know, I mean, this is this is not just some guy at Wired magazine writing this article. I mean, these are publications that are very influential and, um, you know, using language, using imagery and using gradualism. Uh, you can propaganda as a population into believing anything. You can propaganda as a population against genociding a huge portion of their own people, like you saw in the Soviet Union, where they, uh, the rural farmers and a lot of these Orthodox Christians who didn't want to become a part of the, uh, uh, the, the new order, uh, were simply killed off. Right, thirty million uh, people killed in uh, after the Bolshevik uh, Bolshevik Revolution. So, um, unfortunately, I really think that we are looking at a literal. Fight for humanity, right? I think we're really looking at um, long term. We're looking at either total destruction of our ability to feed ourselves and to uh, and to actually live uh, off the land to um, you know have families and not be uh, fed soylent slop. And this other end of it, where I'm not saying it has to be one or the other, right? This is there's a, you know, a whole spectrum of possibilities in between. But the other extreme end of that is. Uh, you know, total control of all resources, THX 1138. You ever seen that movie by George Lucas? Mm-mm. It's weird. It's George Lucas's first film he made before Star Wars. I'm sorry, guys. I'm just like, I'm laying down all kinds of crazy shit on you. <laughs> um, so and that movie is really weird. It's like, you know, everything is controlled. Breeding's controlled. They, uh, Robert Redford's in it. And uh, he's, uh, the AI machine reads his uh, vital signs and dispenses pharmaceutical drugs to make sure that he's sterile. Um, and you know, all food is totally controlled by centralized AI and it's this homogenous society, dystopian future. So that is, you know, that, that is one part of the spectrum of possibilities that we could be going towards. If we don't make sure that people understand how to feed themselves, people are connected to their source of food and that animal agriculture is not abolished. Like we see these, you know, vegan activists trying to do, we got, you see that stuff in Australia. I'm sure you guys saw that. Yesterday in Australia, all these vegan activists shutting down uh, roads and invading small farms, invading cattle ranchers' property uh, in an organized uh, mass event. Um, these people are the unwitting dupes of kind of this dystopian transhumanist possible future that I'm hoping we can avert through, you know, what you guys are doing. Uh, promoting nutrient-dense whole foods, promoting animal nutrition, animal-based nutrition, uh, grass-fed animals being uh, the best source of nutrition for human beings, and um, so yeah, I think that's is the longest answer to a short question I could have ever given. Is uh, that's the, kind of the uh, that's the possibilities.
2: Yeah, Tristan, I think uh, I think we're at uh, kind of a crossroads right now because I, you know, I think there's people that would say that you know, if if we can avoid suffering of animals, if we can all live in harmony, if we can have all of our needs met through technology, if, if we're happy, if we're, if we're medicated through virtual reality, and, and everybody's just happy and chilled out, then maybe that's a better world. Um, but I think to get there, I mean, you know, particularly from the nutrition front, and we're seeing so much human suffering, you know, from a disease standpoint, and I think, you know, whether it's not enough food for everybody or, or too much of the wrong type of food. I mean, certainly I think that's as much of a problem as anything else, not particularly. in Western yeah, exactly. And so yeah. there's a point where do we, is there so much pain associated with eating the, 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 the what I would call a non-species appropriate diet for, for a, a few more decades before, before maybe the technology allows some of these other things to, to potentially happen. Is there going to be a point where we can say, wait a minute, we're not going to go down that road or, or we're going to, you know, you know, because you see how they, you know, they're. You, I mean, I, you're probably as familiar with this as, as I am, as you can see what's being kind of, you know, kind of taught to the next generation in the schools. Yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, It's you know the kids are starting out. You know, you got to take your probiotics, your prebiotics, your Fred Flintstone vitamins. And I your took antibiotics. Your antibiotics.
1: You know, take take your pink medicine, kids. Take the yeah, amoxicillin. I mean,
2: I mean, <laughs> we see this stuff coming out earlier and earlier, and then of course we see this. Uh, uh, you know this is a thing in australia they're demanding that uh, the film dominion which you know is another propaganda film against agriculture be shown to all children over the age of 15 in the public schools and i think this is kind of the, the the this was out there and and it's 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 not going to stop i don't think they're going to give up i mean these people are doggedly determined uh yeah. for whatever reason and i don't know if it's Um, well, I mean, I think some of them are true believers, but I mean, I just, the lower,
1: the lower levels, it's just people who really believe it. Right. But I don't think that Bill Gates for one instant believes that he's saving the world when he publicly states that we've got to depopulate, right? On one hand, he says, overpopulation is the biggest problem in the world. We needed to populate the planet. On the other hand, he says, you have to use these pharmaceutical products. They're going to help us to save millions of lives. And we need to give you GMO foods. They're going to save millions of lives. There's a real dissonance there. Uh, so I think at one level, people are true believers. The lower levels, they're just useful idiots. That's what Stalin called them. He said they're useful idiots. And in the Maoist revolution, the uh, the intelligentsia that actually pushed the ideology, they ended up being killed off too. So the revolutionary thread of humanity, th- uh, you know, throughout the uh, the post Enlightenment era, has been bloody, has been violent, has been horrific. And you look at the French Revolution, what happened there with just you know guillotine bloodbaths of an entire class of people that were killed off same in the soviet revolution and unfortunately i think what we're seeing now with this uh global vegan movement this is kind of one aspect of you know it's one tentacle of this hydra that is pushing for um global revolution what huxley called the final revolution so huxley uh, aldous huxley wrote about this in brave new world and brave new world revisited and he said that Um, The revolution is total. It's every aspect of life. It's biology, it's food, it's technology. And ultimately Julian Huxley actually uh, coined the term transhumanism. And um, the goal is ultimately to turn human beings themselves into a product. And it's not slow or it's not a rapid fire, you know, quick accelerated process. It's a slow process that is done through gradualism and it's a multi-generational thing. Now, It's weird to think that you know people would be caring enough to create multi generational plans like this, but this is uh, when you read these people's writings, that's what they say they say this is multi generational, this is about the final revolution. We are going to live forever through um, you know, through melding with machines and through becoming a part of this, and we're going to create a solid state economy globally. Um, and it's it's really it's really weird to think about, and it's not fun to think about. And I wish I didn't feel compelled to talk about it. I'd rather just come here and, you know, talk about, laugh about some vegans and say they're kooks and, you know, all oh, what dorks these vegans are. Let's keep eating our meat. But it really, I mean, they're educating the children. And if you can educate an entire generation and brainwash them with imagery, with violent imagery that's visceral and that gets this juices flowing and that it opens up parts of the psyche and consciousness, which allows you to then be implanted with um, – you know, worldview forming ideas, it is something that we need to be aware of and we need to fight back. What are our children being taught in schools? You got Earthling Ed, um, who's uh, this lovely young woman out of uh out of England. Uh he's going to uh Harvard, Harvard University to give speeches to these children and to teach on behalf of professors about um about animals as commodities. And guess what? The department, it's highly likely the department that he's going to be speaking at is the Center for Latin American Studies, which is David Rockefeller's Center for Latin American Studies, which is set up to push the green agenda, essentially eugenics, this eugenics agenda to selectively uh, promote population control in certain areas and control of resources. So he's going to be talking at Harvard, which is the mouthpiece of the Rockefeller foundation. David Rockefeller has given millions of dollars over the year to Harvard, uh, years to Harvard. And he's going to educate the kids there about animals as commodities. You've also got in Australia, the animal liberation found the animal liberation party or the animal rights party. I forget what it's called. And they seek to redefine personhood. And so then cows will be people. Right. So instead of a calf, instead of a calf, you have a baby cow. Instead of a piglet, you have a baby pig. Instead of an animal, you have non-human animals. And it's language that actually forms our reality at a certain level. And um, what we see is, you know, propaganda imagery, language all being used to form the worldview of the generations coming up, and essentially weaponize that worldview against themselves. They think, you know, Earthling Ed gets in front of this group of kids and he says, "Oh, hello, little children." do you know about global warming? And they all say, yes, yes. And he says, well, what causes global warming? And they say, carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide. And Earthling answers, and where does carbon dioxide come from? And the kids say, uh, from cars, from cows. And, but I'm, and my blood is boiling at this point. And I'm thinking, carbon dioxide comes from your child when it exhales. When my boy breathed his first breath and exhaled, that was carbon dioxide and these kids are being told that that's toxic that that's bad for the environment and that everything they do is sinful and awful and you know this is part of this climate cult so i i really want people to start questioning this and questioning these things well, why are you being told that the world is overpopulated why are you being told that uh everything you do everything you eat everything every time you poop every time you exhale you're causing global warming or climate change um and these are, these are highly advanced propaganda. Uh, this is very, very advanced propaganda. And it's been studied scientifically for hundreds of years. And the 20th century was the solidification of a lot of these techniques. And, um, and now we're seeing the fruits of it. Unfortunately it is a weaponized culture that is at war with itself, looking to destroy itself and eat itself alive. Much like you saw in the French revolution that ended up just a huge mess. Um, and, um, yeah. So buy our book. See you later. No. I'm
2: <laughs> no. I'm just, you know, because I'm thinking about this, you know, Lord Birkenhead, and you know, he's he's long gone. He died, you know, whenever it was, you know, hundred years ago or something like that. Or, and, and you know, so why would he? I mean, I'm just trying to think about the multi generational stuff. Why would I care? And, and you know, but as I get older, I do, I do want to see what kind of world I leave for my children. And so, you know, do you direct that a certain way? So I, I do see some plausibility in this multi directional argument. But I mean, a young person might say why would I care what people do in a thousand years? Exactly. Who cares?
1: YOLO, man. You only live once. Maybe that's a weaponized, maybe that's part of the weaponized culture, this, you know, hedonistic thing. I mean, you, you see, all right. So in this book here, this book's called eco science. It's a big textbook by Paul Ehrlich and John P. Holdren. Paul Ehrlich was chicken little of the seventies. He was Al Gore, Circa 1970, Al Gore in uh, in like pleated bell bottom pants, right? Uh, Paul Ehrlich was getting on Johnny Carson, getting on television, telling everybody the uh, the world's going to end, piles of corpses on top of corpses, we're going to be eating each other alive by 1984, and it never happened. So this book, Ecoscience, is a 1970s textbook, and in it they're exploring ways. John P. Holdren, by the way, the other author of this. He uh, he was Obama's White House science czar. So these aren't people that were just you know random academics. These are like highly um, intelligent in many ways and very very skilled propagandists. Um, they write about in this book um, the forced sterilization of populations and the use of certain cultural threads. Like uh, he, th- he talks about. I keep using the word thread for some reason. Maybe I've got a I've got a sewing fetish today. Uh, but the uh, he talks about using culture and using economics to decrease birth rates right so he talks about um if people are financially stressed they'll have less babies right so this is 1970s um and these are just these are ideas that people are are discussing for influencing future generations and these think tanks that are funded by these big foundations like john john d rockefeller started the rockefeller foundation as a way to influence the future. So I think a lot of it comes down to megalomaniac, megalomaniacal kind of psychopathic tendencies that some of us may have, and perhaps to create standard oil, right? A lot of, uh, you know, that maybe a few people had to get screwed over for, for John D. Rockefeller to create standard oil. Um, and uh, I think part of it is that, psychopathy, megalomaniacs want to play God. Uh, and then part of it is just the natural human tendency to want to give... Something to our children, right, like I want my kids to live good lives, I want my kids to have skills, I want my kids to know how to feed themselves. I want my kids to I want my son to be a good man and to stand up to things that are wrong and to protect the weak and um, so there I think that's a natural thing right like we you want to feed your kids, you want to teach your kids how to be good people um, and it just depends on our worldview, I guess you know how we justify that
2: hey Tristan, I mean, you and I you know, largely operate over social media. You know, you've got your YouTube channel. I'm, you know, doing stuff on Instagram and some other places. And what do you see as, as that as a method for control of the population as well? Because, I mean, obviously we're trying to do what we believe is right using those channels. But at the same time, uh, social media is, is being influenced by undoubtedly by corporations and stuff. Do so you have any insight into that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, um, there's a good documentary. Um, my friends Aaron and Melissa
1: uh, at, uh, they have a YouTube channel called truth stream media. They made a good documentary called the minds of men. Uh, this documentary is about four hours long and, you know, they actually did a really good job at, in a very, um, academic way showing the roots of the computing revolution basically came out of, um, behaviorist studies and is even connected to, uh, a lot of these doctors that were involved in like, you know, psychological, oper- uh, psychological studies in the 1950s, 60s in the, uh, what's known as the MKUltra experiment. So cybernetics, um, cybernetic networks were developed in order to be tools for behaviorism. So behaviorism is this idea that there's no soul, like there's no, there's no assumption. In behaviorism, they don't even believe that man has an internal reality It's just pure reaction to environmental stimulus, right? So you have a rat, you shock the rat, the rat moves. There's no thought of, you know, well, what's the rat thinking? What is, you know, what is the human thing? So they basically look at human beings like lab rats and animals and behaviorism. And it's very psychopathic. It's not, uh, they don't account for any internal state of man. They're offended by the thought that man may have some aspect of him that's non-physical. It's all just reaction to the environment. So um, the computing revolution, its roots come from military industrial complex uh, comes from like the Macy conference in uh, the 1950s. If you look into the the early, the Macy conferences, um, it was these groups of very, very rich people, uh, big foundations, uh, big corporations. And um, you know, IBM was creating the system of computing that tracked in the Nazi propaganda, the Nazi concentration camp, the prisoners. So they were tracking the prisoners using tattoos and computers so the root of the computing revolution does come from um, the military industrial complex. And uh, so, yes, there is a, an aspect of it that can be used for control. Uh, video games, uh, first-person shooters, the Pentagon admits that uh, they created first-person shooters early on to train people um, to kill. Sorry, one of my chicken slaves is um, being pretty loud back there. Uh, I named her freely um, the uh, so yeah, the, the computing revolution, it, it definitely ties into um, the military industrial complex and stuff. But I mean, I don't know, is it going to be used for that exclusively? We'll see. Uh, we see a lot of censorship now. Uh, it's easy to get uh, kind of blackpilled on the whole situation, right? It's really easy to kind of look at it and say, Oh my goodness. You know, Twitter is openly censoring people with uh, certain ideologies. Uh, Amazon just removed all uh, the documentaries that were uh, talking about the possible link between vaccines and autism—you uh, have open censorship happening on the internet now, and uh, you know it could be, it could be, uh, it could be uh, really bad, or it could be used as a tool to kind of wake people up. So obviously, I put stuff out on social media. I have a YouTube channel. Uh, we got a website. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter. Uh, barely on Twitter, but I, I try to reach out in these mediums. But then at the same time, it could easily be used. Like, I mean, YouTube, for instance, right? Uh, live streaming is, uh, is really big now. I do loads of live streams. I love it. It's really fun. Um, but this guy that wrote this book, uh, this, this, French, um, this French guy called Jacques Attali, he wrote a book called The Brief History of the Future in 2009. And he predicts in this book that live streaming is going to become the major form of media and that we're going to see a decrease in, you know, uh, Hollywood films and stuff like that being popular, and you're going to see more people live streaming. But um, so there, there are people who've been who predicted this long ago. So Jacques Attali, he's kind of the Henry Kissinger of France. He was Macron's um, mentor, basically. So he kind of groomed Macron in many ways. Jacques Attali not just some kook, and he predicted live streaming was going to be huge. He actually predicted we're going to see like live streamed. Um, like people are going to start fighting, like you're going to see like gladiatorial type stuff over the internet. And he called, he called these things. He called cell phones, nomadic devices. And he predicted this is before the internet was on our phones, right? It's 2009 that he published this book before everybody had iPhones. He predicted that these were going to allow people to spread a global culture and to become more nomadic. So he said, people in the West are going to be using these devices and they're going to live scattered throughout the globe. And that is going to be the major vehicle for the spread of the global corporate, uh, technocracy essentially. And that the people he predicted that people like me would be living internationally and be social media influencers. So, I mean, I don't know, man, I don't know how how far ahead have these things been planned. Who knows? Uh, but we can read some of these people's books and see the thoughts that they're sharing. And, um, you know, this is just in, you know, publicly available knowledge. So, you know, I, I don't know. I mean how much can, how much can this be used to control our personality, to form our personality, to uh influence the way we uh think, the way we see the world. It's pretty it's pretty obvious that they're powerful. Like here in Ecuador, the way that girls dress and the spread of pornography through the cell phones and stuff and through the uh through the internet just in the last 10 years has been really obvious to me you know like you see now 13 14 year old girls wearing tube tops dressed up like freaking britney spears and shit whereas a few years ago it was a lot more conservative garb you know they weren't so promiscuous and um so i i think they're powerful and the internet is a tool for spreading good ideas but at the same time you know it spreads porn and toxic culture and gets people fighting about stupid shit that doesn't matter and uh You know, you got freely the banana girl, or you got. um, I mean, you you got all sorts of sorts of nonsense too.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting with the censorship side of things too, and it seems like with uh, with how quickly we're able to get information and how how many people are actually setting up their livelihood based on these structures, and like it can be turned off almost immediately if they get censored, and I think that's something that's very new as well where it doesn't take time to like, you know, it's not like in the past where you'd spend a long time building up whatever you have. And then it's also a little hard to lose it. Whereas now you can build something up really fast. You can become famous almost overnight if you, you know, do something crazy enough, but then, you know, you can get switched off immediately. And when people tie their, their livelihood to these things, then, you know, they can lose their livelihood overnight too. Yeah. It's interesting.
1: Something just came to mind, like the, some of the proponents of, uh, the internet, like the early guys who were pushing the internet and pushing the idea of cybernetics as a behaviorist control tool. Um, like Timothy Leary was one of those guys. He was the Harvard psychologist that was involved with MKUltra experimentation. And um, he openly said in an in interview that most of his ideas were fed to him through intelligence organizations and stuff so he uh he was one of the major proponents of this and he talked about um the computer revolution and terrence mckenna is another one of these guys who also promoted uh psychedelic drugs uh and uh transhumanism and uh computers and the idea that we are going to become one with machines so it's a weird thing where you have um you know the the roots of computers come from the, the roots of the computing revolution do come out of uh some really interesting characters that were connected to, um, you know, intelligence agencies and stuff and people involved in it, the ideas of uh, social engineering. Um, so that's, that's just one of these things in history that's always fascinated me is propaganda. How, what, why do people get motivated to kill people that they don't know or to just genocide people for a, a lie? Um, And we think it can't happen to us. We think that we can't, that we're so advanced. We're so smart. Look at our iPhones. Look how cute I am in my selfie. I'm so smart. I'm so advanced. I went to college, but it's, um, it's, uh, we're just a few generations away from people that were engaged in human sacrifice, right? Like where I live here, uh, in Mexico too, you know I mean? Lopping off heads in the volcano at the top of a, uh, not a volcano at the top of pyramids and rolling the heads down the uh, steps and eating human flesh. So we think we're so advanced, but just a few hundred years ago, um, you know our, our ancestors were doing some pretty crazy stuff, so I think we have to be careful of what we do get influenced to uh, to do you know I mean it's it's easy to motivate people to violence and um, the the revolutions in like Egypt, the color revolutions these are all spread through Facebook these are all spread through social media so we've got uh, violent revolutions and uprisings. Of course, in the, the Western world, we're told that you know, the Egyptian revolution was great. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi was terrible. You know, uh, Libya, uh, we needed to, uh, to uh, liberate them. But when you look at what happened, I mean, you had Muammar Gaddafi was basically killed in the most brutal way on camera, on social media, in the streets. And these were influenced through foundations, like the Open Society Foundations, and using social media. So they're tools they're revolutionary tools that are being used for for global revolution, I would say, but that doesn't mean that it's going to it has to work it doesn't mean that we have to submit to these ideas It doesn't mean that we have to uh be led along by our noses um, and uh yeah i mean it's it's heavy it's not like easy things to think about or talk about, uh, but I think we should we should consider these ideas and instead of just brushing them off and thinking, okay well, uh what's on t v tonight maybe think. What is what I'm watching on TV really telling me about who I am, what I should do, how I should behave, and what the world is all about? Because uh, these are powerful tools. You know, television was, uh, was a revolution in and of itself. Radio as well. You know, mass communication is a tool for social control and always has been seen as such by the people who are disseminating these devices, right? Hitler loved the idea of television. The first image to be sent through uh, the cathode ray tube on TV was a Maltese cross cult symbol. So you're looking at um, that stuff that goes deeper than just like pure entertainment, stuff like that.
2: Hey, Tristan, let me, uh, because I I hear a lot of people, including yourself, have mentioned something called Agenda 21 or UN Agenda 21 or some people call it the 2030 Agenda now. Uh, Because people want to look at, you know, we we hear all this stuff about the Rockefeller Foundation. For most people, that's so far removed from our day to day existence. We we can't even comprehend that level of. You know, malfeasance or you know this this kind of conspiratorial type stuff that most people say this it just sounds too crazy. But let's well, talk you about just this. look at
1: history. I mean, you could read the Rockefeller Foundation documents. I would say to those people, yeah, yeah. Agenda twenty one is uh, uh, the agenda for the twenty first century. Agenda twenty thirty, it's called now. Um, this is um, UN program for sustainable development. So the word sustainable development is this new eugenics term. Sustainable development is a catchphrase for controlled development. Controlled by who? Uh, Well, controlled by supra-governmental organizations, essentially the heads of big foundations, heads of big corporations. You've got Nestle, uh, Cargill, Monsanto, uh, Syngenta, Dow, uh, all these huge multinational corporations pushing these ideas Eat Lancet, right? So Eat Lancet. Ties into this smart city idea I mean this it all tra- it all ties into transhumanism uh, it all ties into the consolidation of resources and power into a grid and an economy that is solid state, meaning uh, no more growth right so like you, you can't have limitless economic growth is the idea um, unlimited economic growth equals the destruction of the environment, rampant birth rates we need to control breeding, get people off the land and get people living in smart cities where central planning controls the uh, production of and dissemination of all resources. So essentially, they use councils locally called the uh, the ICLEI, I-C-L-E-I councils, which you probably have. You live in California, so it's everywhere over there. Uh, And in the name of sustainable development, they are pushing, uh, not even through laws, but just through councils and through dictates, what uh we can do with our land where people live and what you're allowed to develop right so it's about they've got a map you can look at the agenda 21 or agenda 2030 map um and it first started in 1992 at the rio summit uh the earth rio like earth summit or whatever and uh guys like maurice strong and um uh, some of these other big uh global characters maurice strong's like rockefeller canada he's this uh, oil tycoon and of course, all the oil tycoons, they just want to save the world, right? It's, you know, Lex Luthor just wants to save the world. You know, Frank Underwood, he's just trying to help the little guy and save the world. It's always, uh, it's always sold to us as something good. And it's, uh, it's about sustainable development. It's supposedly on the surface about reducing uh, pollution. But um, yeah, they've got a map and it shows on this map where people will be allowed to live uh, in this, you know, Agenda 21 map. And it's basically a few mega cities, it's basically crowding people into mega cities, having, like I said earlier, uh, all food production automated and, uh, brought in, you know, using robotics, using machines. And, um, yeah, it's just about control of resources basically. So, uh, books like eco science that I talked about earlier, John P. Holdren, uh, uh, Paul Ehrlich, these are the type of people that have, drawing up these maps and drawing up these ideas. So it's basically it's academics from universities, indoctrinated academics, telling everybody where they can live, what they can do, how much resources they can use, um, and what they're allowed to uh where they're allowed to be, where they're allowed to go. So they're they want to actually cordon off a lot of the uh the United States into wildlife reserves and have want rewilding. So basically remove people, remove ranchers from the land and um and have, you know, you all eat soy, corn, wheat, and all this junk. Uh, it got updated instead of agenda for the 21st century, agenda 21, now it's agenda 2030. And this is why for the last two years they've been telling you, we have 12 years to save the planet. We've got 12 years until the next doomsday because 2030 is kind of this benchmark as far as global planning and long-term um, structural planning of the, the future economy. Um, so it's uh, to save the world, of course. We've got to all give up our rights Mother Earth wants blood. You know we've got to you know get rid of as many people as we can, and um, so it's the same old thing that we've been uh, that I've been kind of talking about for the last hour or so. But it is real. I mean, the agenda 2030. It's not like this is, uh, you know, it's not like this is like David Icke with his reptilians and he's like the reptilians are gonna or, you know push the 2030 agenda. It's not. It's nothing esoteric like that. It's just right in front of our very eyes. We can look at the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And they all sound really nice and fluffy, but they want total equality, right? They talk about um, uh, equality. Uh, they talk about uh, universal basic income. So it's essentially, a, it is a global socialist communist structure that's, um, you know, where uh, all resources are shared where it's our resources, right? That's why the language is all about how are we going to feed the world? And of course, these are people who are not involved in food production at all talking about how are we going to feed the world? These are privileged academics out of Harvard, out of Yale, uh, out of these big universities who have lived pampered lives, who don't know the salt of the earth people, who aren't, you know, who don't talk to blue collar people like you and I. Um, And, you know, it's, 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 um, it's pretty, it's pretty delusional in my opinion, but it is uh, being pushed forward really hard now. And you see the world economic forum, Bill Gates, Bill Gates foundation, Rockefeller foundation, all these big foundations, Carnegie endowment. um, They're all pushing for these ideas. And actually the social justice warrior movement really ties into this as well. um, Which is why you see, um, you know, the Carnegie uh, endowment building this new social justice building in New York. And you see, Uh, You know uh, the Open Society Foundation pushing for, uh, you know, the the color revolutions all over the world. It's it's not about saving people. These revolutions are about um, you know bringing McDonald's and Monsanto. It's a Mc revolution. It's you get the global Mc culture and you you bring it into Iraq. Right? Let's let's go save Iraq by bringing a McDonald's and Monsanto. It's not about really liberating people. Although you know I'm sure there were many people that didn't like Saddam. uh, I would say that a lot of these revolutions we see uh, are are misguided. And this agenda 2030 thing kind of is more like a, uh, it's like a soft revolution. It's a soft economic revolution using policy, using global planning. And, uh, you know, instead of p- family planning, we're looking at uh, sustainable development. So what is it sustainable for? Well, it's sustainable for a certain group of dictocrats and technocrats that want to use um, you know, the power that they have now to make sure that they, uh, you know, the, that they have control over the future. And a lot of these people believe that they'll live forever too. Like people literally believe that they're gonna become part of machines and you know, that they're just gonna live forever. They're gonna upload their consciousness into Sophia the robot. Uh, you know, Sophia the robot now has, um, Sophia the robot, you know, have you seen this in uh, Saudi Arabia? Uh, this AI robot was given citizenship human rights for a robot in Saudi Arabia. And it's always cute. It's funny. It's stupid. Who cares? Uh, but we're talking about a country where women barely have rights, but now an AI robot Sophia is given citizenship. Australia talking about giving animals citizenship. So we're really seeing the dehumanization of human beings and the, uh, the creation of a society that's very, very inhumane. Of course, all in the name of progress, um, and uh you know evolution you know, we're evolving as a species we're just going forward we're always going forward so because today is the next day after tomorrow after yesterday that means we've evolved so anything that happens is good it's all progress but the progress that we're being told is progress is basically this um kind of global medieval techno serfdom that uh, that agenda 21 agenda 2030 is pushing so i hope i answered that question <laughs>
2: No, I mean this is all very fascinating, Tristan. And you know, it's obviously you given a lot more thought than most people out there have. And you know, I just wonder for the average person listening, you know, what are they? I mean, how is eating a bunch of grass-fed steaks going to prevent this, you know, this transhuman <laughs> movement from happening? How do how does that all fit together? Well, I mean, in your
1: view? Yeah, well, I mean, who who's who's in charge of your food supply, right? Like, who's actually controlling where your food's coming from? You go into a cattle rancher, and you you work with the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, who my uh, my. Um, uh, my father-in-law, his uh, father was a member of the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, and my father-in-law was a farmer. And then, you know, he went off to the university and uh, you know, got educated and did other things in his life, but he loves it. He watches videos of tractors uh, for fun on YouTube. He likes to watch tractor videos, mm-hmm. and, uh, <laughs> so does my son. So, you know, these uh, these are the salt-of-the-earth people, man. These are the people who actually are connected to the land. They love what they do. When you're going and you're getting, you know, grass-fed beef from a local producer, you are supporting a very—you're supporting the least um, s- amount of suffering that you could support from buying your food. And you made a great video about this the other day. How many squirrels get killed on these wheat fields? How many pigeons get shot before the wheat threshers go through? A viewer sent me a video of uh, of from uh, the BBC or something or some British uh, channel of these dudes just popping off pigeons with rifles and shotguns before the wheat threshers go through. And these guys are killing up to 150 pigeons in one go. They're shooting rabbits. They're shooting these animals because you don't want them to get uh, ground up with the wheat. So, so many more animals are dying. So many more people are suffering. And not only that, we are literally supporting our own enslavement when we support these huge grain conglomerates like Cargill, Cargill, Uh, Syngenta, Monsanto, we are supporting the destruction of our cultures, the destruction of our health. And, you know, ultimately, I would argue the complete enslavement of ourselves and our children through supporting this big ag, big pharma thing. And uh, through supporting locally produced food, through buying grass fed beef, which, as you pointed out many times, all beef is grass fed in the US, it's all fed grass. In the end, they'll fatten them up on some grain. And I would argue that you know, I mean, look, if, if that's what you can afford, just like you say, if that's what you can afford, I would way rather have you be healthy than you suffer, right? And you, I know you, you like the taste of grain finished beef and a lot of people do because it's got more fat and when you're eating a, a carnivorous diet, you kind of want to get those fats in. So I have nothing, there's nothing wrong with finishing off on grain. What I have a problem with though is the consolidation of the grain supply, the consolidation of the food supply and these patented seeds that farmers get basically forced into growing Uh, They're told that they're going to get higher yields. They're told that it's going to be way better. They're going to make more money, and it ends up not really being the case. So supporting grass-fed local meat producers uh, or having your own animals is a way to directly combat this, to be healthy, uh, to give ourselves the nutrients we need, to give ourselves the most – Um, nutrient-dense foods that have those nutrients in the most bioavailable format, and they're so easily digestible, and you can easily assimilate these nutrients in the body, Um, really supporting these locally produced foods, first of all, decreases the amount of pollution, right? And I'm not talking pollution as in the stuff that your babies exhale, carbon dioxide, the stuff that plants inhale, uh, the, the stuff that plants breathe. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, actual toxic pollutants, you know, the, the, the decrease in the, the need for uh, petroleum byproducts to be pumped out into the atmosphere and stuff like that. We can support local producers and support family agriculture and hopefully resurrect the family farm that was destroyed by the GMO revolution that was basically destroyed by the green revolution. And, um, and we can do that in a way that's fun. It's enjoyable you know, how fun is it going to a farmer's market and talking to somebody who produced your food? It's great. You know, you can get like you know, you, these honey producers, these people who keep bees. They're always really cool, funky people too. You know, we, we love getting local foods for our kids. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, good for the environment It's good for your health and it's good for the health of your communities. Because something that these devices do, I mean, yes, they allow us to communicate with each other. Uh, The cell phones allow us to talk with each other. I can share information. I can live stream, do all these cool things. But they sometimes disconnect us from our immediate environment. And I think people miss a lot how important it is to have real conversations with your neighbors, like to really look people in the eyes, shake a guy's hand. Hey, you're doing a great job. I love your meat. Um, how'd you get it so marbled? What'd you finish this animal on? You you learn things, you, uh, you learn things about yourself. You learn things about the community and, um, say that's what we're all about. Like people building real communities, online communities are great, but, uh, how about get out there and make real communities, right? Talk to your neighbors, talk to your, uh, talk to your family, you know, get to know your kids, get to know your parents. Maybe, um, that's all very, very, uh, fulfilling the real human interaction.
2: Tristan, it's been great. We've got uh, we've got two more podcasts to do today, so um, we'll have to get you back on for a second round. Tell us a little bit about a little bit more in detail about your book. You know, it's I guess it's, it's got your wife's name on there. I don't see your name on there, so maybe she. Didn't I know. know what the hell, man. <laughs> so the carnivore cookbook. I've looked through it. I, I think the recipes are cool. I'm really excited about that. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's going to be a boon for people that want to experiment with with you know meat based diets. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff for everybody in there. It's pretty comprehensive. In my view, it's because- all
1: animal foods. Do you notice there's not a single plant in the whole book? There's not even seasonings. We, just, we, we basically wanted to make this for the people that were on. We wanted to make this for the real roots carnivores, right? People who want all animal foods in their diet. And um, I don't think there's another book out there that's using all animal food ingredients. So it's pretty unique in that regard. Um, Jessica spent she spent quite a while making the book. Spent about a year and a half making it. So it's all based on the most nutrient-dense foods, available animal foods, um, you know, of course, we were influenced early on by Wes and Price's stuff and a lot of the keto stuff early on. But this book is uh, is definitely something special. So there's like over 100 recipes. Uh, there's a whole section on uh, we like to promote nose to tail eating. Uh, we've been promoting the nose to tail stuff since back in 2014. Um, so we're all about, you know, we really like liver, um, heart, stuff like that. One of the recipes, beef heart meatballs. I really like that one. Basically, just Go to your butcher, have them grind up some beef heart and make some meatballs with it, throw them in the oven so there 's simple ingredients, um, no plant foods, just meat, fat, animal foods, and salt and there 's even a couple like uh, uh, carnivore carb recipes using, uh, using a little bit of honey, so we had to put a ice, an ice cream recipe in there that my daughter really likes, and my son likes it too uh, it 's basically heavy cream uh, and honey to sweeten it there 's a little bit of salt in that one too and uh, maybe a few other ingredients. I forget exactly how she makes it, but um, yeah, zero carb recipes, except for the one honey one uh, for people who really love animals. That's what we called it. So uh, yeah, n- no plants, no plants were harmed in the making of it. And it's as uh, available on our website. I think uh, we'll probably hopefully have it up on the, uh, was it? Animal, animal-based nutrition that you guys are getting up there soon.
2: Yeah. That's uh, animal-based nutrition network.com. Yeah. That'll be coming up pretty soon. So we'll have, that and a lot of other things up there, which will be cool. Hey, where where do people find you on social media? I mean, I know you got the Primal Edge. Uh, YouTube is probably the biggest place, but tell us. Yeah, yeah. You, and I know uh, you got a YouTube. Keto Carnivore Collective. You guys do too. Let us if give us a little info on that stuff real quick before we let you go.
1: Oh, right on. Thanks, man. Thanks. I uh, I forget to like plug things. Um, so you can find us at, at PrimalEdgeHealth.com dot com, and then on Instagram and Twitter, Primal Edge Health uh every month we do kind of a community group group coaching thing because i've i've been coaching people for a few years now on uh, low carb diets you know the healthy diet fat loss sometimes some people are trying to gain muscle some people are trying to lose weight but uh, uh my favorite tools uh, for really helping people get their health back get their life back are low carbohydrate ketogenic diet and a uh, carnivorous diet uh, carnivore diet just being something that's just so powerful like as you guys have seen so many people have been uh, totally transformed in their, uh, in their bodies and their health, and even their mental health using a carnivore diet. So, um, yeah, we, uh, we do the Keto and Carnivore Collective every month. Uh, this month, we actually – this month's kind of a special one. Actually, we sponsored a bunch of ex-vegans. So um, we, kind of, we kind of look at our channel now. Part of what we do is uh, we're a vegan rescue operation. Right now, a lot of the stuff we talk about in this podcast, you know, I do touch on this stuff quite a bit, but you know, we, we, do a lot more, right? There's only so much you can say about this stuff. That's just one aspect of what we like to do. So we like to pr- promote carnivory. We like to promote, um, you know, healthy lifestyle and, uh, we, we like to outreach to a lot of vegans and we kind of like to go head to head with this old vegan agenda thing, these animal activists and, uh, this other nonsense we see going on out there, but we like to pull people out of the cult. So uh, we sponsored at least I think it might be ten or twelve ex-vegans this month in the keto keto and carnivore collective. So it's kind of a special vegan uh, vegan rescue operation that we've been doing this month. And uh, but yeah, we do that every month. And uh, so I do private coaching too, coach clients, but I try to push people more towards the group coaching because um, I you know we're able to handle more clients that way. So we're doing groups from between uh, everywhere between twenty and fifty people. We usually cap it out at fifty. And uh, it's really fun. We do two live interactive voice chats per week and you got full access to us. Jessica gets involved as well. Uh, so it, it's just a really fun way to do coaching because people get to talk with each other. It's kind of a community aspect to it. And, uh, and that's really fun. So we run that kind of like a course with interaction and um, yeah, that's it. primeledgehealth.com and, uh, and, you can find the uh, the carnivore cookbook. Definitely check out the carnivore cookbook. It's uh, I don't know. I, I think it's really cool. The cover is beautiful. Uh, i'm glad you liked it sean and uh zach i was trying to get you one but i didn't get your uh, your address to send you one man we'll have to, uh, maybe afterwards uh, oh yeah De- uh, definitely i'd love one awesome
0: well yeah uh, cool. thanks
1: for having me on guys been, Ab- been real absolutely
0: nice. we'll make sure to link all that stuff including the book into the show notes too so listeners can go right there and click on that and get to it right away uh but yeah thanks for coming on and uh have a good rest of the day
1: yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on guys. Really appreciate what you're doing. Uh, Sean, uh, really appreciate all the, uh, all the work you do to kind of bring awareness to what's going on out there. You make these things very, uh, very easy to understand, very palatable for your audience. And, uh, I, I really appreciate what you're doing, the work you're doing to promote, um, you know, uh, real healthy human diet and, uh, and with the Cattlemen's Association, everything else that you're doing, bringing awareness to the need to protect these ranchers, uh, because we are going to see in the next year or so, we're going to see a big push of these animal rights nutcases uh, terrorizing small family farms even more. And we need to protect these people. We need to figure out what we can do to help uh, to, to secure our food supply for the future of our children. So thanks, Sean. Thanks, Zach. Appreciate what you guys are doing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Likewise, Tristan. Cool. All right.
0: Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.